Sunday school, as long, uh, along with the, the Sunday school for the students, uh, that'll be led, the adult Sunday school will be led in here by Dave Johnson this morning. So we're going to be looking at um, a theme in which we'll enter into a few different passages today, but they're all, they're all in the Gospels, and it'll actually be um, kind of go in order. So we're going to start in, in a few minutes, if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to start Matthew 4, 18 through 22, and then we'll look at a few verses in Luke, which is just two Gospels later, and then some verses in the Gospel of John. So we'll be flipping around a little bit this morning, but I figured... You could keep up. It's, it's, uh, it's all in the Gospels. It's all in close proximity. And you literally only have to turn one direction. So I still, I still remember the feeling. I was driving home from a long work day. Those, it was early, very early in uh, kind of the dawn of Cheryl and my marriage. We were very young. Uh, my work days were very long then. And it might have even been in the first week of our marriage. I was, I was at the ripe old age of 18 years old. Uh, so Cheryl and I had gone right from kind of under our parents' roof uh, to living as a married couple together. And I just remember the feeling driving home one day that that first week, and I thought, I'm really independent. I, I'm really, like, I, I'm not under my parents' authority anymore. There, there's no more of them checking up on me. There's no more of my mom saying, don't eat this in the fridge, you know what I mean? Like, or don't eat that, or we're going to eat at this. There's no more, hey, what time are you getting home? All those things, you know. It just, I, I was independent. All those choices of when and where and what I'll eat and what, you know, what we'll do and when we'll do it, they, they, were, they were now mine to decide. It, it, was a, it was a moment of glee, really. <laughs> if I, if, <laughs> I was like, you know, I was feeling pretty good about it. Um, but I, I also remember while I was driving home, and thinking about that, and, and kind of this, you know, maybe even an appropriate excitement of being independent, being out on my own, that it was that time of my life, there was also this little bit of uneasiness that came over me. Like, here I am, I'm independent, I'm making the choices. All right, then. You know, it was like the other side of that coin. Well, well how are you going to do with that? And, and are those choices going to be good choices? And are they going to be wise choices? And are, are they going to be choices that not only benefit myself, but are they going to be choices that benefit now my new wife? Are they going to be choices that benefit my family? So, so part of me reveled in this condition of being out from under a certain authority that I knew throughout my upbringing, and part of me wondered <laughs> how I would do without it. And I think, I think even during that ride, and I, and I remember it very clearly, 
I was, I was beginning to realize that there is a level of healthy authority, healthy guidance, healthy structure, and accountability that I really need. <laughs> and that I need to be the healthiest version of myself and really to the greatest good to others. So last week we started this series on, on church values. Again, what, 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 is this, what is that church about? What do they value? Values we looked at are, are accepted principles or standards of an individual or group. And it's also a word that indicates worth, value. It's something that's important. So we're asking, what are the guiding principles of great importance to us as a church? And we'll, we'll actually spend a few months considering this. And, and, I, and I said last week, I, I kind of uh, laid out the argument that what you value most is what most drives your activity and what you will prioritize in your activity. And I said that, you know, some people might say, well, what I believe should do that. And again, I agree with that as long as what you believe is what you value. Uh, this is not where I told you to turn, but just a few verses I'll read. Jesus gave these two tiny little parables. It's just a few sentences. And, and this is found later in Matthew, Matthew 13. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold, so think about his activity, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great, what? Value. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So here, you see that connection there that these, what these people valued in those treasures drove them to action. Drove them to different priorities. Drove them, in those cases, to sell everything. That nothing was more important than this treasure. And Jesus is saying that's what the kingdom of heaven should be like. The primary value that we began discussing, and I just wanted to take two weeks, and that doesn't really do a service. The primary value that I wanted to start with here at Oregon Hill Grace Chapel is that we are a christ centered church, or should be a Christ-centered church, that all we are and do must orbit around all that Jesus is and does. And we first looked at this concept of Christ-centeredness through the lens of Jesus being our Savior, individually and as a community. We tend to uh, make Christianity very private and individualistic in our culture because that reflects our culture. But really, biblically, it's something that has to happen between a God and an individual. But God is always working with the people. It's, the church is the called out people of God. So, so this idea that we're Christ-centered and Jesus is our Savior, as we went through last week, means that we must be those who readily admit that we have a need for rescue, right? We went through this last week, that we would be humble, that we'd be meek, but yet we're also those people 
within that vulnerability, within that authenticity, that realize that God has supplied that need in our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that he is looking to readily supply that need to us every day. So that's something that gives us confidence. That's something that gives us contentment. That's something that keeps us reliant upon him and seeking him. So today we'll look at our goal to value Christ-centeredness through another lens. And, and that we're going to look at that as, as, again, as individuals and as a Christian community, all must orbit around the fact that Jesus, not only is Savior, but is Lord. His Lord. Lord's a word we use a lot in the church setting, right? And we, we sang songs. I bet, you, I bet you we sang it 50 times this morning, the word Lord. Um, but it's not a word that's commonly used Monday through Saturday, right? So, so what does it mean when... So if, if someone says, if an individual says, Jesus is Lord, what are they saying? Headship, right? Thanks, Kathleen. Authority. Good. Any other synonyms or Myron? Okay. Savior. Master. That's interesting, again, and that's a word that kind of freaks us out a little bit, right? The, the concept of master. King? Again, not, a lot of words that really in our culture, there, there could be a natural recoiling from, right? We're a culture of that, and again, you know, I think God has ordained it, worked through it, but... We're a culture that has rebelled against a lot of that. We're a, a king. We're not a monarchy. You know, we're, we're a free and independent people. And here we start talking in these terms of authority, of kingship, of master. Jesus in charge, right? The 80s show, I always think, Scott Baio, Scott Baio, long, beautiful mullet, you know, Charles in charge. So Jesus in charge. And this, this idea, as we looked at those ver verses in Colossians last week, that Jesus is in charge of everything. He is supreme over all creation. But as Dave said, Jesus in charge of me. And really, in reality, it's not, it's not fair to separate this concept of Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord. In, in Romans 10, 9 and 10... It says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved, right? So you see this connection between salvation and lordship. For it's your, with your heart that you believe and are justified and it was with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Yet many Christians seem to want salvation apart from lordship. And we can all be guilty of that, right? It, we we want to be saved in a future sense. 
We want to be saved from, from hell unto heaven, and we want to be saved from uh, future judgment unto future bliss. That sounds good. But this concept of salvation having an active role in my life, no idea. <laughs> What's that? Just want to make sure I don't hear a trumpet or anything like that. Because <laughs> I'm ready, man. Let's go. You ready? <laughs> I did say twinkling of an eye, so I think it would have happened faster than that. <laughs> man, where was I? Yeah, so, so this idea that, that salvation would have an active role, that, that it, would, it would cause a revolution in the way I live my day-to-day -day life, that we kind of say, ooh, that's different than just being saved to a future retirement plan someday. So to many, their, their Christianity is a, is a carefully controlled segment of their lives. You know, maybe I'll give God an hour and a half on a Sunday. The rest is mine. However many hours in the week. It's like I'm out from under my parents' authority the rest of the week. But what if you need authority? The concept of Jesus being Savior apart from Lordship, as I already said in, in Romans 10, is really completely foreign to the Scriptures. At a minimum, when I say Jesus is Lord, I am recognizing, purposely recognizing, that I'm not the highest authority in my life. I may have treated myself like that at one time. I may have treated others like that at one time. I may have treated God like that at one time. But when I say Jesus is Lord, there's a change. I've chosen to rightly surrender to Jesus, really, to what was his all along. that he is king of my life. So if Christ-centeredness is a church value for us here at Oregon Hill Grace Chapel, it means that Jesus is individually and collectively Savior and Lord. It's to him we surrender the control of our lives. So how does this work out in real life? We'll look at a few gospel passages here. First, one of the clearest commands that Jesus gave his disciples in the early days of his ministry involved three simple words, right? Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, so they were fishing. They were actively going about their work, for they were fishermen. And then he said what? Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once, they left their nets and followed him. He'd stop there. To follow, in essence, it could be used in different contexts, but, but means to take the same direction in which someone is leading. So if Jesus is truly our Lord, we are responding to his invitation to go where he's leading. 
This is a reflection of a Christ-centered life and church community. Many times we're so busy trying to convince God to follow us. You say, well, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? But isn't it true? I thought, I thought of a, a, a little kid in the mall. We don't really do malls that much anymore, do we? Like malls, brick-and-mortar stores are a dying thing. But I just thought, like, for me growing up, if I was a little kid and I was with my mom in the mall, I had a one-track mind. Can't be toy store, baby. Can't be toy store. So it's like, it didn't matter what mom's agenda was. I wanted to tug. I wanted to pull. I wanted to lead mom. Can't be toy store. Maybe it's a candy store. Give me candy. Give me toys, you know? My mom didn't tolerate that stuff very well. But we, how often we want to lead God. God, I would like to go there. God, we should go there. So much so that we're not paying attention to God wanting to lead us. But Jesus lead, Jesus being Lord means we're going where he leads. A few weeks ago, Cheryl and I went to lunch with Bonnie and Lenny, and we, we took motorcycles there. And I was just thinking about riding motorcycles. When, I, when we went um, to lunch that day, Lenny led and I followed. And it, it, this will drive a little more maybe for motorcycle riders, but follow me. When you're... A, when you're especially riding, following someone on a motorcycle, you've got to really pay attention. You've got to pay attention to the person in the lead. You've got to kind of match their speed if you're going to keep up. You, you've got you've to think about sometimes they might go around an obstacle in a road or point out an obstacle in a road. Um, sometimes you got to, you know, the, the signals on a motorcycle are small. So are they slowing down? Are they turning? You, there's just a lot of paying attention. And then on a bike, it's not like unless you have the little headsets in your, in your helmets, you're not communicating. You're just you're watching and you're leading. So maybe Lenny goes and turns and goes a direction that I wouldn't have gone. But if we're going to stay together, i got to do what? i got to adjust my plans. <laughs> so, well, I kind of would have gone that way, but he's turning this way. He's in the lead. He knows where he's going. I'm going to follow. So there's, there's this paying attention that it takes, and there's also this willingness to be flexible and adjust my plans, adjust my agenda. That's what disciples of Jesus have to do. We have to be those who pay attention to Jesus. We have to be willing to adjust our plans. Isn't this what we see the, the early disciples doing? Jesus just says three simple words. There's an invitation, come, follow me. Get this command. And it says right away they drop their nets, middle of their work day. I always think, like, what was that? You know, can you imagine doing that? Hey, boss, I'm done. Right away. I'm focusing on Jesus. I'm paying attention to him. I'm dropping everything. I'm changing my agenda. He's my new priority. And Jesus tells his disciples that this following, this paying attention, this shift of agenda, this, this going where he's leading is not always going to be easy. Later on, he actually says, he says, this is out of Luke, it's in a few of the Gospels. He says, if anyone would come after me, this idea of following me, come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That would have been a really, really stark statement. This isn't in context of them looking back and saying, oh, Jesus died. And no, this is like pre-Jesus going to the cross. The cross is this 
picture of execution, brutal, brutal execution, something that was inflicted on them by, by the Romans. And Jesus uses that picture and says, following me, part of what you have to do is deny yourself so much that you take up your cross. See, you get this picture of Jesus saying that there has to be an execution, a brutal execution of self-will when you follow me. But it's right after that that, he's, that he says, hey, like, listen, if, if you really, if you want to save your own life, it's that, if that's what you're about, you're going to find yourself losing it. But if you want to save your life in me, you'll find it, right? So there's this paradox going on there. But it takes this execution of self-will daily. That's very intentional, daily, to choose a life with Christ. Now, someone might ask, how do I know where Jesus is leading if he's not physically with me? Say, well, that's great for his disciples. It's great for Peter, James, and John. It's great for them. Jesus literally said in an audible voice with a physical presence, come follow me. How do I know? Well, first of all, if you believe in Jesus, he is with you. He's with you in the sense that he has sent a counselor and a comforter and one to come alongside you, one that he's in perfect unity with, the Holy Spirit of God, and he has poured out that Holy Spirit like never before in time that in the age of the church, we'd have the Holy Spirit come upon us in such a way that he indwells us, that he empowers and guides from within. And he'll lead us to a deeper knowledge of Christ. He'll lead us to a deeper knowledge of God if we're paying attention. <laughs> If we're, if we're executing self-will, if we're adjusting our own plans, our own agendas. And this leading will also help us with the practical everyday application of how Jesus has already led. What do I mean by that? Luke 6, turn to Luke 6. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter 6. Jesus asks a really straightforward question. In verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? That's what we're talking about this morning. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is authority. Jesus is master. Jesus is king. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And what? Somebody read it. And do not do what I say. Pretty straightforward question, right? What's the logic in that question? What is he, what is he getting at? Okay. Anybody else? I'm not trying to be complicated here. What? I'm sorry? Complete obedience. What, what are you, where are you going with that in your head? Devotion to Jesus. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in essence, Jesus is saying it doesn't make sense. Right? It just doesn't make sense for you to call me Lord and not do what I say. It's a contradiction. It's, it's, it's not reasonable. And, and he goes on, you know, and, and he talks about the consequences of that. There's this famous, we find this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, too, something very similar in teaching. Verse 47, he says, I will show you what it's like who comes to me. I'm sorry, I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid his foundation on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck and the house, that house, struck that house, but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice, again, that, that's that illogical, unreasonable, I'm calling you Lord, but not treating you as Lord, is like the man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. So if Jesus is truly our Lord, we're responding to his teaching through obedience. Our choices and our, display, and, and, and our behavior will display a grasp and a respect for what Jesus has taught. And this is a reflection of Christ-centeredness, a reflection of what a Christ-centered life looks like, a Christ-centered church community looks like. But for this, for, for one, it means we know what Jesus taught. Now, I'm a great proponent of reading good books. Cheryl has helped me through this through my many years uh, with her. Almost what? We're going on 26. 26. <laughs> That's why I did it. So was, she said 26, 27, 28. We're going on 28. Yep, so, so she has been, she has, so it hasn't helped her math, but her reading... <laughs> Has been. She is a reader, and she is. You want you want to know the you know a, a good Christian book. I mean, she's just always. She's got five books at a time. She's helped me a lot thinking about how much can be gained by good reading, and and I'm also an advocate of reading good Christian commentaries. But but please make sure that you that you know what Jesus teaches better than your favorite author. That's not to say to the, to the neglect of good books and good Christian books and. That can, that can help highlight some things in Scripture for you. Awesome. But please know what Jesus says better than your favorite author. Beth Moore wrote something interesting. She, she, she recently wrote, We make a severe error in judgment when we assume people who have long been right cannot be wrong. There is no one we follow to the death but Jesus. No one. And I thought this was interesting. She said, if we know our theologians better than we know Jesus, we will rarely recognize when they and he split paths. Hmm. When we know our theologians better than we know Jesus, we will rarely recognize when they and he split paths. One other encouragement with this, and again, take it as I'm saying it, please. I will also regularly encourage you to read the whole counsel of Scripture. Even in my teaching series, I try and, I try and 
kind of, I get into, we get into the New Testament. We'll spend some time in the Old Testament. Read the whole counsel of Scripture. I just started the book of Jeremiah, <laughs> the prophet Jeremiah. Um, if, we don't, if you don't understand what's going on in the, the Old Testament, you don't really understand all that happens in the New Testament, right? Read it. Get to know it. This is how you get to know God. This is how you understand his way. But I would encourage you within that, never neglect the Gospels for too long. Never neglect the Gospels for too long. Like, 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 consider that part of your regular diet, if you will. I'm not saying read only the Gospels. Don't get me wrong. But never neglect them too long. Because we have to understand as New Testament, New Testament Christians, the entire Scriptures from the lens of Jesus. Amen? So I understand the Old Testament now through the lens of Jesus being the fulfillment of the Old Testament. I understand the epistles even through the lens of Jesus, who Jesus is, was, what he said, what he did. When I, when I remove a good, a good understanding of who Jesus is, the rest of the scriptures can get pretty warped pretty quickly. I have to know what Jesus taught, but not only do I have to know what he taught, I have to put it into practice. That's what lordship looks like. So Jesus has to become the great meddler of my life <laughs> with good intent, with better intent that I would, than I would have for myself. How I handle my money, how I handle my influence and power, how I handle sex or sexuality, how I handle marriage or relationships, how I handle anxiety, how I handle pain and suffering, how I handle anger or pride or those who treat me badly, how I respond to outcasts, how I respond to the marginalized, as we might say, or those in great need, how I handle my priorities, how I approach faith and prayer. All of these should be under the lordship of Jesus' teaching. The last set of verses you can turn to is in John 13. John 13. Now, this has also progressed a little bit. I know there are big jumps through Jesus' ministry. We started very early in Jesus' ministry. Now this is very late in his earthly ministry, right before the cross. And he models a vital lesson for them. And I know it's, it's a handful of verses, but just for context, we'll read the whole thing, starting at verse 1 through 17. A pretty, pretty well-known story here. It was just before the Passover feast... Jesus knew that his time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. That's, that's amazing in, that, in the context here, sorry. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who has had a bath only needs to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. So now comes the great teacher. You have this model and you have this teacher. Do you understand? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so you should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that, I, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So Jesus, knowing that the Father had put all things under his power, right, that's the context, gets up and puts on an apron like a servant. If Jesus is truly our Lord, we'll be responding to his example by modeling his activity. That's what Christ-centeredness looks like. The Apostle John later says in his first letter, this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. <laughs> it's one of those statements that makes me squirm a little bit. Now, was John saying that, that we had to be perfect? No, I mean, he just in that, in that letter just talked about how God is faithful to forgive and Jesus is our advocate. But it's clearly that it's clear that John is saying that if Jesus is Lord, our lives are going to be molded by his example. And in John 13, this example is one of humble service, humble sacrifice. Is your life molded by Jesus' example? What's beneath you? Who's beneath you? Who do you consider the scum of the earth? Who are the untouchables in your mind and heart? Jesus, knowing that all power had been given to him by the Father, put in an apron to wash these guys' feet. So if Christ-centeredness is our value, specifically looking through this lens this morning as Jesus as Lord, what will be the activity of our community together?
And we'll wrap up with these thoughts. At very least, at very least, will be a place of intentional discipleship. And what do I mean by that? We'll be teaching and modeling the instruction and example of Jesus. Now, this should happen from the pulpit. The pulpit, <laughs> the music stand. It should happen at youth group. It should happen at Sunday school. All these, you know, it should happen at Bible studies and small groups, but should also happen in our, just our activity together, our serving together, our knowing one another, our, our communing together, our speech together, that, that we would be known as a people who follow Jesus, as a people who pay attention to him, as a people who put aside our own agenda, as a people who execute our own self-will. And then that would be evident among us that we're his disciples. And not only will it be evident among us, not only will it not just be an academic discipleship, which in, at one level it needs to be in teaching, it'll be an active discipleship displayed among us, but it'll also be, by extension, this intentional discipleship will be modeled in how we respond to people. And it'll be modeled to, in the way of radical response to people that we see in Jesus. And this is where the rubber really meets the road in this. That Jesus responded to people that we just don't want to. Is Jesus Lord? To those who would oppose us, to those who are different than us, to those who are oppressed in the world, whether it be women, whether it be children, whether it be the immigrant or the refugee, which the Bible talks plenty about, whether it be the minority or the poor or the mentally challenged, or to people that are really troubled, who are victims of their own messes, their own bad choices, to the addict, to the maybe the single teenage young gal that's pregnant, to the, to the criminal. Our responses will be molded primarily by how Jesus responds to people. So what that means is my response to people will not be molded primarily by my tradition or my upbringing or my politics or, or my intuition in the flesh, my logic even, or what's socially acceptable at the time, but how I respond to people if Jesus is Lord will be under the governing authority of how he responded to people. Period. That I would be a loving servant. That no one would be beneath me. If anything good is going to come out of this Christian community, it's because, it will be because we together value being Christ-centered Jesus as Savior, Jesus as Lord, his teaching, his example, led by his Holy Spirit, together responding to Jesus' three simple words, come follow me. Let's pray.
Father God, we pray for forgiveness, for how often we fall short, for how often we prioritize everything but your Lordship. Father God, I pray that we are a people, both as individuals and a church, that really reflect that you are Lord. That we know and respond to your teaching. That we know and respond to your example. That we are every day sacrificing our self-will. And that we would be led by the presence of your Holy Spirit to apply it. Help us in this, Lord. We want this to be our value. We want people to be among us, whether it be on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday afternoon, out at the diner. See, that's a people where Jesus is in charge. We pray this in the almighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.